Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Should, should we tell people where we're at and what we're doing? Where we're at? I think people that are here know where we're at. Well, I know, but a lot of people are going to listen to this. Oh, later on, that's true. Yeah, we should probably tell uh, them where we're at. We're in Park City at the Mountain Summit, brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Total Archery Challenge, all kinds of... There's a lot going there's on here. There's a lot going on here. I mean, we had a thunderstorm come through here the other night. I... <laughs> I don't know if we can say this, but my uncle used to... I'm not going to say that. He had a name <laughs> for a storm like that. But So, uh, 
You're yeah. gonna tell them the rules. You you said that your voice is shot from yelling at me yesterday. It was. I couldn't get your attention. So if I do most of the talking, it's because Corey says his voice is shot. We'll just ask him to bugle, you know, God bless America or something. <laughs> can you do that with a bugle? You can do anything with a bugle. You brought your God bless America call with you by Rocky uh, Mountain hunting calls? We can probably figure something out if we needed to. All right. So here's how it works, folks. Right here underneath this black blanket, whatever it is, tablecloth, Gerber brought us knives, tools, hats, discount coupons, you name it. And anyone who comes up to this mic and asks a question will answer the question. Corey will answer it by fact. I'll answer it just based with some anecdotal story. Uh, I, I know Corey said Randy's got a BS in... in uh, What'd you marital say? advice. He, he said he had a PhD in marital advice, and I said, I'm pretty sure you have a BS in marital advice. So. Uh, same. And it's not a Bachelor of Science. All right. So anyhow, if any of you come up here, don't be bashful, and you ask a question, we'll pull the, the curtain off the box here, and uh, you'll walk away with the new Gerber knife, the Randy Newberg Series elk hunting knife. So... We got, we, we got our first uh, first question coming here, I think, Corey. This is the one I did recover. <laughs> oh, he, he's holding up an arrow that he said he did recover. <laughs> yes. So that's is good. That, is that the, the only four, one you the came The four back? that were yours, I didn't. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> All right. It was a joke from the other day. Wait, what's your so, question? My question is, um, so I turkey hunt and I elk hunt, um, and I'm trying to figure out what the, um, I guess, the similarities between the turkey calling and the uh, elk calling is uh, from the different types of calls that are, are made. So, uh, totally Randy's, question Randy's to you. pointing yes. to me here. So <laughs> that, that uh, is I, a Corey question for sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So I tell people who are turkey hunters to forget everything you know about turkey hunting if you're going to elk hunt. And that's especially true when it comes to calling. So with turkey, you're given short bursts of air on a turkey call on a diaphragm. And it's just that short, choppy. With an elk call, you want just opposite. You want smooth, rolling sounds. You don't want the breaks like you do in a turkey call. So with turkey, you're using more air volume and air pressure to control that. With with the elk call on the diaphragm, you want to use more tongue pressure and less air pressure on it. So we actually did a elk summit a couple, what was it, a month ago? Yeah, about that. And there were a lot of people from uh, the southeast that were turkey hunters, and they struggled more than any other demographic learning how to elk call. Now, are the calls the same or similar? Or They're similar? not. So like a, a turkey call is usually going to be a double latex call, and the reason for that is because you get the slap of the latex, and it makes that clean break on the sound. You don't want that clean break on a cow call. You want it to be really smooth and just roll over. So most good elk calls are going to be a, a single latex diaphragm. So there's differences for sure in the construction. Uh, most turkey calls are probably going to be a little wider frame, whereas an elk call is probably going to be a little bit narrower on the okay. frame. Well, thank you. That's been very informative. Yeah, You're absolutely. welcome. And Gerber wants you to come up here, pick one of the knives and grab a hat. So. Yes, sir. Uh, oh, Randy. Yes. I watched your show on the Tongass National Forest, Reindeer. My show on the Tongass yeah. National Forest, yeah, Reindeer? Yeah, we're there with our friend James, and I yeah. want to know if you have any tips. Tips? For going up there to the Tips Tongass. for going up to the Tongass National Forest and hunting Sitka blacktail deer. We got deer. it on our list. Really? Yeah. Uh, when they tell you that it's you have to gain 1,200 feet of elevation and it's going to take seven hours, you believe better, them. You better have some strong... Uh, yeah. Yeah, be, be ready. Uh, wear rain gear the whole time, even if the sun is out. Okay. Uh, bring some gloves that will not be penetrated by devil's club, I'm like welder's gloves. or yeah, it's, it's just brutal. Did you but, love it, though? Did I what? Did you love it? Oh, was I it, loved every minute it of it. Yeah, it was worth every bit of it. It's like, what do they call those kind of hunts? Type 2 fun or something like that? <laughs> 
<laughs> I haven't heard that. Like no pain, no gain? Yeah, it's like, well, it's not fun while you're doing it, but when you get off the mountain and get to the beach, it's like, oh, that was a lot of fun. Even though we thought we were going to just, you know, get mad and hurt each other while and we were up there. you don't think we're too old to go do it, huh? Yeah, I'm... Uh, I, I probably have one or two of those trips left in me because I can't figure out how to fly llamas to Alaska. <laughs> so uh, okay. that's what it'll be. But the guy sitting to my right is going to get a full-blown experience of that in September. Oh, so are you really? I'm, I'm yeah. waiting for the report when he comes back. Ooh, well, he's fun. saying when now before he said if we come back. So Well, and, it, true. And you're if, going up to Tongas? We're going to Alaska to hunt oh, elk. Oh, good. Yep. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. So I did ask his wife if... Uh, if she wasn't going to buy more life insurance on him, if I would be allowed to. so <laughs> What'd she say? She just paused. She's like, he didn't tell me it was that difficult. Yeah, I, I, I left out the part about the brown bears and the wolves. Yeah. And the only being one transporter that'll actually fly to the island. and. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm, yeah. We're going for sure. All right. <laughs> well, go do it. You'll enjoy it. Corey, you know when you asked them about, and the guy said, uh, you know, uh, we know we can get up off the lake and they had all those little maps or marks on the map. That's how far they made it last year. You I know. know. So each year they crash like an extra hundred feet further. So yeah. No, he, he did say be prepared to call in a boat and hike to the ocean just in case we can't land or get back in there. Yeah. Tips uh, for getting yeah. in shape? Do a lot of hiking. Yeah. Do, do a lot of hiking. You see this really big peak back here? Yeah. Run up it as fast as you can with 45 pounds every day before now and when you no, go there. I mean, really, are you really, is it really that? <laughs> I hunt a lot of crazy places and it's the most strenuous seven okay. hours I've ever well, invested. Well, he told us it was pretty tough going up there. Yeah. But so. Take our time. All right. Yep. Have fun. <laughs> hey, you, you want one of these knives or hats? All right, we got another question here. Yeah, so uh, nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you, what yeah. was your name? Dustin. Dustin, good yeah. to meet you. So what do you think the biggest issues uh, facing us for conservation are? I mean, uh -huh. you know, because <laughs> I got kids and we're, you know, I want my kids to hunt, you know, I want my kids to grow up and have the things that I had, you know, and, and my dad had. So, you know, do you think it's, uh, I, I, you know, I heard that women population hunting is increasing. Uh, I don't know about kids or, you know, like, so what can we do on our part to, to keep this land and keep it going and, and, and be able to hunt for generations? Because, you know, I, I know this is a, kind of a political question too, you know, could be, you know. Uh, so I don't know. That's, that's, yeah, basically my question there. Yeah, Randy's a lot more versed in conservation and and knows way more than I do, but just on the surface, my first thing is always access. I mean, access is huge for us. To the more hunters we have, the more access we need. And yeah. Randy and I talk, you know, Randy is always talking about building a bigger pie. And, you know, yeah. there's so much pie right now, and as more people come to the table, we each get a smaller piece of the pie, and we're all worried about that, and we're trying to protect our piece of pie. Right. We're missing a, an opportunity to build that pie bigger. Sure. And there's there's opportunity there. You know, that's, I'm a life member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for that reason, yeah. because they're helping us build that bigger pie. So that's my, my first thing that I always say is, you've got to be a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation if you're an elk hunter, yeah. just for the fact that they're, they're protecting access for us, yeah. in addition to all the other things things they do. Sure. Yeah, I, I'll add to what Corey said there. You know, we've really experienced some, some bubbles with COVID, a right. lot of people out in the woods. And what it has shown us is how we've maybe taken our eye off the ball a little bit on access, mm -hmm. whether it was access to private land or access to public <laughs> land. And now all these people who want to be out in the woods, whether they're hunting, hiking, fishing, it doesn't matter. It feels a lot more crowded because Absolutely. every year we lose hundreds of thousands of acres of accessible land, whether wow. public or private. Mm -hmm. So over the last 20 years, say we're losing 400,000, that's 8 million acres we've lost. And it's, uh, Corey said, he focuses on access and that's what I focus on also because if we don't have a place to go, the, the tag, the experience, we're not gonna have it. And if the places we go are so crowded because we keep losing more access, the future for those who would be interested in following, like you mentioned in, in your footsteps, 
It's just not the quality of the experience that they right. hope for. So yeah. access is never easy. It takes money. It takes a lot of hard work. And I think over the last 20 years, we, we, we're a country that's at 331 million people right now. And another less than 30 years, we're supposed to be, I think, pushing 400 million people. Where do all those people go to recreate? Colorado. <laughs> I was going to say they must be coming to Montana because right now you need this summer in Montana. I mean, it's not even hunting season. It's so busy. You almost got to bring your own rock to stand on. There's so yeah. many people there. Yeah. And a lot of folks would say, well, then, you know, we should quit promoting hunting. And I don't buy that. Yeah. You know, Corey mentioned that do we go for the smaller pie, which is in the business school curriculum, they say those are scarcity thinkers. In other words, it's a scarce resource. We fight over it. And then the other theory in business school is abundance thinkers. In other words, let's make a bigger pie so that we all have something and we all are vested in it. And so I'm an abundance thinker. I've never never been the scarcity thinker guy. So right. how do we create more access? How do we put more wildlife on the mountain or out on the prairie or fish in the stream and approach it that way? And uh, like Corey said, you know, this group that sponsors this right now has added 1.3 million acres of new or improved public access. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has. So uh, your money's going to do important stuff and your volunteerism here with RMEF. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people say, Randy, you're really a big fan of the Elk Foundation. Uh, yeah, I have been since 1989 when I became a member. Yeah. And uh, it's it's proven to, to work. And so as we get more people interested or the country just grows more and more, we just got to work harder and harder for access. So do you think it, sorry, second question here. Uh, do you think reintroducing elk to these East coast states, is that, is that the solution? To huge. The, yeah. Huge, huge solution. Cause I, I see a lot of them in Colorado, you know, you get a lot of those East coast mm -hmm. plates, which isn't, is what it is, you yeah. know, but in, in my adult life, we have introduced elk to Missouri, to Arkansas, yeah. Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. That's getting record bulls out there. right? Yeah. That makes a difference. That creates advocates for the cause of wild places and wild things yeah. because people can now go see it. Some of them luck out and they draw a tag. They can go participate. Yeah. But even if they can't participate, they see it and they see the tangible benefits of conservation. And whether they hunt or not, they become more engaged in conservation. That's awesome. And that I'll add to that too, just what Randy mentioned about having more advocates for hunting and, and access is so critical. We can't limit, we, we don't want to keep people away from hunting. We want to bring more people in so we have a bigger voice because right, right. now hunters are a, a huge minority right. and you can see where direction is going. You know, a lot of people are fleeing some of these uh, liberal areas and liberal states and they're coming to the mountain states and they're becoming residents there. Yeah. It's not just non-resident hunters coming to these states, it's population growth of people who love the outdoors right. and they're coming to share it with us. We have to be forward thinking and yeah. build a bigger pie, but also build more people into that, into that advocacy. Right. Cool. So, Thank you guys yeah, so much. Appreciate yeah, it. you're Great welcome. Question. You ask two questions, you get one knife. <laughs> I, I thought maybe he asked the second question because he wanted a knife for his hunting buddy. There you go. Oh, so. I have this one, so I'll take it. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm, a, I'm an adult onset hunter, and um, it's been my brother and I the last couple of years just going out and, and hunting, and we never had uh, a father to help us you know, uh, encourage us and, and coach us and mentor us. So uh, this year, my son has, has drawn his, his first deer tag and uh, we're hoping to connect with that. Is there any fatherly advice that you could impart for me to help him and, and my other three kids? Well, Corey, I only have one kid. You have three. So you really are a parent. They, they say <laughs> if you only have one kid, you're really not a parent, right? Because if you blame the kids, you blame the right one. They don't fight with each other, you know? So I'll let Co Corey answer this in more detail. But my theory with my son was just make it fun, whatever it is. How old is your son? 
He's 16. 16. Yeah. So make it about him for sure. And I, you know, it took me a little bit to adjust to that. My kids started hunting when they were 10. Uh, and, and I'm driven. I mean, I, I want to be successful. I want to push as hard as I can. And when you have a 10-year-old who's just not into it that day, you've got to make it about him. So there were days that we built snowmen along the hunting trail. We just stopped and rolled a snowball. Uh, there are days when he just wanted to stay at camp. And so you have to make it about them, make it enjoyable. Sure, the focus is hunting, but if they're done hunting for the day, don't push it because that'll... That'll make it a negative experience for me. You want it to be positive. So bring lots of marshmallows and candy and videos, you know, whatever it takes, but make sure they know they're hunting and spending time with their dad. And, and don't be afraid to give them the steering wheel once in a while as far as the planning and the what we're going to do today because they might come up with an idea that you might think, oh, that's, I don't know that I'd do that, but what the heck, it's, you know, my kid's idea. And every once in a while that works out and it makes them feel so vested in the process that you aren't just telling them, they thought of it. And this success or this encounter or this learning experience was them doing it. So it, when it's their hunt, let them have some, some planning and some control over how it unfolds. Plus at age 16, that's about when they start thinking that you don't know anything. And so if you let them choose, they can't blame you for, for having a bad experience. So. <laughs> Good point. Well, thank you. Great thank question. You. Thank you. All right. Looks like we got someone right here. You say 16 is the age where you don't look. <laughs> Ten-year-old is starting to, I, mean, I don't know much anymore. <laughs> but I want to be that guy. I've heard you on many uh, different podcasts and videos of Bugle, and I've never seen you live. I want to see if I can get you to... Are you calling me out? Is that a, I you, want to hear some... You want, you want Corey to bugle live, huh? Oh, I, I, thought, I thought he was talking to you. Both? <laughs> no. No one wants to hear me bugle live. I mean, if you want to hear me bugle live, just go down to the farm and listen to the pigs grunt. That'll be good enough for me. I, I, I make one heck of a good grouse call, though. I, I have a blue grouse call and I have a rough grouse call. Let's call. hear him. You know what grouse I was? No. Well, we call them blue grouse. Now they separate them between duskies and sooties or something like that. Randy just separates them by dark meat and light meat. That's, yeah. <laughs> so, but we'll, uh, we'll let Corey show you how. This, this young guy wants to hear you call, Corey. He brought his son up here just to hear you call, so. I bet his son has a question. He's waiting in line. <laughs> Could I bribe you with Dairy Queen to come up and ask a question? No, he wouldn't even do it for a Dairy Queen. All right, let her rip. All right. Thank you. Did you get your knife? Suffice to say, when we are out hunting together, Corey does the calling. That's and because Randy's about 200 yards behind me looking for his arrows that he shot at grouse. You know, those elk will still be there. Those grouse, they have a tendency to disappear a lot quicker than a grouse, so, but. Hey, so first I wanna thank you all for what you've done. And my question is, uh, I'm a, first time hunter and I just drew my first deer tag this year. What's your advice for, you know, someone brand making new in hunting and like, how can I help build a bigger pie as you describe it? Yeah. So archery or rifle deer tag? Muzzle loader, actually. Muzzle loader. Man, I, I had three guesses and I still got it wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I guess my first thought would be go and have fun. You said you're, you know, this is your first time at it. Uh, Focus on making it fun. And then the basic principle of everything is learn as much as you can about the deer you're hunting at the time of year you're hunting them. So when is the season date? Uh, it's like, it's in October somewhere. October? Yeah. Okay. So if this is mule deer, I'm assuming in Utah, you don't have much for whitetail, if any here. Uh, this is going to be the pre-rut phase for deer. So in this, this October period, in the pre-rut, they're going to be harder to locate. 
They're going to be up higher. They're not going to be down with the does like they will be in November. They're probably going to be in their bachelor or out of their bachelor groups where they were in the velvet. And now they've dispersed to just solo bucks. So you're looking for a little bit like the needle in the haystack. Uh, and I don't know if it's a limited entry tag that'll have low pressure or it'll have a lot of pressure, but best idea is get as far away from a road or trail or the hunting pressure as you can because the bucks know where that is, especially in their pre-rut mode. And go there and know that they're just kind of hanging out, trying to build more fat reserves before the rut comes and they're trying to stay away from people and other bucks so that's that's like three three minutes that's probably not worth anything but my best effort <laughs> i think just add to that be there at daylight and stay till dark because that time of year they're not moving a lot uh you probably aren't going to catch them middle of the day wandering like you will other times of the year so be wherever you're going to be at daylight and and have good glass be patient but uh, no, they aren't moving too much right then. All right, and I have one more question just when I'm up here. How can someone from me, you know, just from a small town, help build a bigger pie and help hunting live on? Yeah, uh, how small is your town? Uh, I don't know, not super small. Like 500 people, 3,000? I have no idea. I, my my <laughs> hometown is 200 people. Not that small. Okay. Do you have a Dairy Queen? No. Yeah. No, I'm talking to him. Oh, him. Oh. No, I don't have a Dairy Queen. Okay, right. so you're probably under 5,000 then. All right, yeah. But anyhow, you can volunteer, uh, whether it's for, you know, a scout group, 4-H, uh, hunter ed instructor group, whatever it is, RMEF, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, has committees all across. I think there's 16 chapters here in Utah. You can help that way. They're just... You know, whatever it is that interests you, and I don't care if it's about access, if it's about fishing, or anything related to conservation, there's opportunities to go and volunteer your, your time. And uh, the other part of that is always put on your best impression for people who might be watching. I mean, we, we are all, whether we like it or not, especially in the modern day of social media, we're all kind of in the fishbowl. We're all ambassadors. We're all a face of hunting. So... You know, do your best to put a good face on it. And just that is, is worth a lot. Sweet. So I have a question for you. What's that? What got you into hunting? Well, uh, I did scouts and I'm an Eagle Scout and all that and love the outdoors. And I just looked up one day, how do I gut an elk? And I saw his gutless method <laughs> on YouTube. And I'm like, that looks awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Oh, so. well, that's great. You might want to come up here and grab one of these Gerber knives that I use on the gutless method <laughs> and a Gerber hat. Thank you so much. How old are you? 15. Yep. And you're already an Eagle Scout at 15? Holy. When you were 13, you were, oh my God, this guy's going to be president someday, Corey. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hello. Howdy. Uh, can, can you come a little closer? There. Is that all right? Yeah. That's great. Um, first question is uh, for Corey. Um, I'm first time archery, and I'm just wondering if there's any advice or anything that you say to yourself right before, like, chaos of the moment and things are going crazy, the elk's going crazy, and your heart's going crazy, like, what do you say to calm yourself down? Man, I haven't found the solution. I hope <laughs> I never do. But, uh, you know, but I think it, it, it is important to, uh, as exciting as it is, the adrenaline rush and everything, yeah. when you pull the bow back, uh, I found that just practicing all year, shooting a bunch of arrows, just to build that muscle memory, because I have literally seen people miss an elk at eight yards. And you think you've got 36 inches of height there to hit. You've got six feet of length. How can you possibly miss at six or eight yards? And I've seen it. I've seen 20 yard misses more times than I can count. So yeah. just having that muscle memory. So you're anchoring naturally, your fingers on the trigger, you're looking through the peep sight. Uh, that's going to be super important. So shoot your bow a ton. Other than that, just repetition, enjoy that moment. Repetition. Breathe, breathe. Don't hyperventilate. Okay, awesome, thank you. And then Randy, how was your uh, wolf? How was my wolf? So those of you who watched the video, uh, I, in Montana, where Corey and I live, we're allowed to hunt wolves. Uh, so I shot one and I've always been uh, interested in experimenting with anything I shoot. 
and everyone told me, oh, you can't eat them. They're full of disease, blah, blah, blah. So uh, when I cooked it, it wasn't very good. The flavor was good, but they'd scared me so bad about disease that I put it in a sous vide for three or four hours at 170. You put it in a what? Sous vide. He cooked it to death. How do you spell that? I don't know. <laughs> it starts with an S, and it's got a V in it and a, and a D. It's a French thing. It cooks so, things. You cook it in water, hot water, in a bag. Well, by the time I got all done with that, it was like the inside of a golf ball. You ever take the cover off a golf ball? It's a big ball of rubber bands. Uh, flavor was good. Everyone thought the flavor was good, but when my crew came to work the next morning, they're all holding their jaw like, man, my jaw hurts this morning because they were chewing on that rubbery thing. So a good friend of mine, uh, Corey Pearsall, who works at a company called Birch Barrel, said, hey, can I have the other half of that wolf before you destroy it again? So there was a great big event in Missoula, Montana uh, that I went to, and Corey cooked it. And he, he's like the Charlie Daniels of the open fire flame. Uh, and it was fantastic. And there were, it was an event like this, and there's all these people, it was announced that, hey, if you want to come and eat some of Randy's wolf, show up here. And people came, and their first little thing was they'd take one little strip, some, something less than a bird would eat, and they put it in their mouth, and they're like, huh. And they grabbed a bigger strip. And then they're like, can I get one of those tacos over there? <laughs> uh, it's, I know some would say this is a pretty low bar, but the flavor was far better than any of the spring bears that I eat. Nice. Uh, so if, if I shoot a wolf again, the whole thing's coming out with me. I, I'm eating those things. And uh, you could talk to any of those people that day. <laughs> I know Corey's just probably looking at me like, I told you that guy wasn't right. But I, I mean... I eat muskrats, I eat beaver, if, you know, I do a lot of trapping, and I, I eat that stuff, I, you know, it just... Uh. It explains a lot. <laughs> I had to ask, because my husband and I have deer and a wolf tag for Idaho, so... Oh. I, I, would, I would try it. Uh, we, we put a YouTube video out there of how Corey cooked it, so... Okay, Look cool. at how Corey cooked it, not how Randy, and not this Corey, Corey Pearsall. Uh, don't don't follow my path of how I cooked it. So, okay. but it it actually has quite a bit of flavor. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for everything you guys do. Yeah. Appreciate the videos. Thank you. So um, I'm also an adult onset hunter. So this is my third elk season, trying to seal the deal. I got a cow elk tag for not too far away from here, actually. Um, is there a role for calls, um, calf calls? Um, cow calls at all for cow elk that late in the season? So what, what season are we talking? Like December 20th. December? Yeah. You know, I would, I would take the calls more of just a cow call. Uh, they aren't going to respond to it. You aren't going to be calling them in that time of year. But if you happen to bump them and they take off running, you can settle them down enough to get a shot. Uh, so I'd definitely have the calls. I, and I wouldn't just hike and blow the calls looking for a bugle or looking for cows to respond or come in. But... Uh, if you bump something, if uh, you need them to stand still for a shot, or if you need them to move so you can get a shot, calls, you know, they're, they're a vocal animal. And they're going to they're gonna be curious about, okay, what's going on up there? A cow just called. You know, they might step out in the open to get a better look. Uh, so definitely I'd have a, a cow call with me. Okay, awesome. Appreciate it. Thank yeah, you all so much. Thank you. Appreciate all y'all do. Thank you. All right. I like your shirt. Yeah, thank trophy you husband. Have you seen my wife? Yeah, trophy wife. <laughs> I like that. We were asked if we were newlyweds. You're what? We were asked if we were newlyweds. Are you? No, it's been seven years. Seven years? Oh. You're just getting the rules sorted out then. I guess See, so. I told you there was going to be some marriage advice there. And I'll warn you right now. Well, go ahead. What's your question? <laughs> so I've listened to and watched a lot of stuff, but this question's never been answered for me. Uh, elk hunting's full of ups and downs. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of disappointment. I suffer from anxiety and depression. And being out for nine days is gonna be pretty hard this season. Um, you guys ever seen anything like that? Or, you know, some of your hunting buddies that deal with the same thing? Any advice, I guess? Um, I, I can't say that I have, um, but, you know, I, for me, I have these days where I kind of have it, you know, I'm down, you know, it's, it, 
I had great expectations that it was going to unfold this way or it was going to unfold that way and it doesn't or something goes wrong or I made a mistake. Uh, for me, it's about trying to get up every day and realizing how lucky I am. Uh, you know, I, I live in the greatest country in the world and I get to wake up and even if I only got one hunt a year, this is pretty. This is a pretty special thing that I get to do. So I struggle with keeping my mind focused on the positives. And I find if I can find little bits and pieces of what that is, uh, I look back and on day three, wow, I got one or day five or whatever it is. So I, I can't speak to it, you know, in, in the precise sense, but just... The, the way my ups and downs go over the course of a season, over the course of a hunt, even over the course of a day. Uh, you know, I just, I got little routines I do to kind of get me out of a funk if I'm in one. So, what is that? Uh, my crew would, <laughs> they, they would say I pick on them. Uh, I, <laughs> no, not really. Usually I just, I go for a short hike. I just try to clear my mind. And I know we might be glassing on a knob and the last thing you want to do is, you know, expose yourself to the to the animals if they might be there. But you'll see a lot of times I just get up and go for 10 minutes and come back or whatever it is. Uh, I do artwork in the dirt. Uh, one time I, I finally caught up with Corey. I picked up my dirt art from him. Uh, we were in New Mexico, and it was a brutal hunt. And when I got up to Corey in the dirt, he'd laid out sticks that says, I hate elk. <laughs> True story. <laughs> but, uh, so I don't know. I just It depends on the day and, and whatever it is. But any activity I have, I, I have to clear my mind every once in a while. It's kind of like hitting the refresh or the reset button. And for me, those are usually just short physical things like, you know, doing a bunch of burpees or it's just <laughs> my crew thinks I'm crazy and they're probably right. But some of those things they see me doing are to get my mind back to where I want to be. So, so and I'll, I'll add, cause I have seen that quite a bit and hunting is difficult. I mean, there, there are way more downs than ups. Uh, I think the important thing is to keep realistic expectations. And, you know, for however long you've been hunting, if, if you're just starting, your expectations need to be more of the experience. And keeping in mind, like Randy said, we're so blessed to, to be able to do what we do, but to recognize each day is a blessing and recognize that I'm out in the mountains. That's what I live all year to do. I'm here doing that today, regardless of the success of filling a tag, regardless of the success of finding animals. That's part of the journey and enjoying the journey, not looking for just a, a destination of success, but enjoying every step of that along the way. And then being realistic, you know, success rates are 10 or 12%. If you're a new hunter, you're probably going to fall a little bit below that even. So not going out there and feeling pressure to fill a tag, not going out there uh, with just that goal in mind. There, there are a lot of other things that you can do uh, to enjoy and to get the most out of that hunting experience. Yeah, to, to Corey's point of expectations, uh, that's one thing I worry about in media. That's why I show all the things I screw up. I fig I just when I think I've found every way to screw something up, I invent a new way to do it. And I want the audience to see that because I think unrealistic expectations are not healthy for hunting. Elk hunting's hard work. Elk hunting involves lots of failure. And so for me, I I look at this and say, okay, I screwed that up, or I haven't found an elk in three days. I also force myself, I keep a little journal. My crew keeps them on a phone. I guess you can take notes on a phone or something. Yeah. I'm, I'm like old, old school. I got a pencil and a tablet. Uh, and so I sit down and just say, all right, what, did I, what have I learned in the last day and a half? Why have I not found an elk? And so that just going through that exercise helps me clear my head a little bit forces me to understand that, hey, like Corey said, success rates are 10, 12, 15%. Okay, you know what? I'm, there's a lot of days I'm going to go home without filling my tag. There's a lot of hunts I'm going to go home without filling my tag. But every one of those trips have been a learning experience for me that's getting me a little bit better and a little bit better. So, 
And don't be afraid to take a, an evening off. You know, if, you, yeah. if you're physically exhausted, mentally you're going to be tired. And it's going to wear on you. If your body is saying, I can't go anymore, but your mind's trying to make you, pretty soon you're going to beat yourself up and say, come on, I, I can't do this. Take an evening off. Take a morning off and sleep in. Drive into town and get a milkshake. I mean, whatever it is, just don't push so hard that you, you have an unenjoyable experience. Thanks, guys. Yeah, you're thank welcome. You. Uh, uh, seeing his shirt that says trophy husband the other day before I left town my wife is a big Dwight Yoakam fan and he has a song called Home for Sale and my wife was singing Husband for Sale I don't know <laughs> when I get home on Sunday night I'm not sure what the deal is going to be. But seeing that trophy husband shirt made me think of that. I, I don't know that I'm much of a trophy to sell. I was going to say, has your wife ever bought you a shirt that says trophy husband? No. She reminds me. And so this is getting into marital advice. Again, all you guys, you women will nod your head when I say this. All you guys pay attention. So I worked in a sawmill uh, while I was going to college. Don Bowman, good old boy. He was the millwright. Every morning he'd come over to the boiler room where I worked and he'd have coffee with me. And one day he comes in, he says, hey, Randy, I hear you're getting married on Saturday. Yep, I am, Don. He said, well, I've worked with you for three years, and I've met her about five or six times. And I'm just going to give you a piece of advice. You don't bring anything to the table that she could not replace by noon tomorrow. So act accordingly. <laughs> he was right. Anyhow, no charge for that advice. <laughs> I like that, by the way. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you guys for all you do. And to everybody else who's come up here with a question, great questions, really liked it. I got to give a big shout out to the young guy who's a muzzleloader. I'm a muzzleloader, primarily uh, hunt with a reproduction 1820s trade gun flint lock. So I don't have a whole lot of success, but I have a whole lot of fun out trying. <laughs> so my question for you, Randy, is I've seen a lot of your YouTube videos with, I think it's Jim Bechtal. Bechtel, yeah. Yeah, great videos. Are you going to do any more hunts with him anytime soon? Yeah, he's, and, com he's coming to Montana this with year. With his... Uh, Yep. Muzzle loaders? Jim does not go anywhere without his custom-made Hawken. Now, I think it's... He, he has to get it re-rifled because he shoots it so much. I think he's up to like a 58 caliber now. Awesome. Uh, but he's he's coming down. Uh, we're trying to line up what, what we can do. And he has a lot of points in a lot of states. And he wants to do a muzzleloader hunt someday in, in while a rut is going on and there's bugling activity. So uh, I, I'll never be as good of a hunter as Jim is. I'll never be able to grow a beard like his that he's been working on for 48 years. Uh, but I learn a ton from him. And uh, I, I learn a ton hunting with Corey. I, one of the benefits I get of hunting with other people is everyone has a different approach, a different style. Uh, they use tool, they're, they're hunting tools differently than I do. And it gets me out of my ruts. It causes me to think differently. And I would say hunting with Jim, who is a geologist, uh, it's just, it's been one of the eye-opening things of my adult hunting life. So you, if, if you have a chance, come up to her later and ask her for a picture of her, of, of this. My prairie dog yeah. hunting? She, <laughs> with she's the, hunting with my muzzleloader? With, yeah, she's hunting with a custom-made old smoke pole rifle that is, it looks like it's five feet long. Yeah, it's only it's only three feet. I think oh. it's 36 or 38 inches right. long. But she hunts, when everyone else is out there hunting prairie dogs with their long-range rifles, she's out there with her custom-made smoothbore. So. I will say my husband was the one who helped me build it from a kit. I would, okay. It'd still be sitting in... in pieces if he hadn't helped me put the kit together. <laughs> but thank you for all you do. I love the muzzle loading uh, episodes because you just don't see much about muzzle loading out there. You see a yeah. lot of archery, a lot of modern firearm, but for all of us muzzle loaders, thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. So first of all, thank you guys. Like everybody else said, your videos are a big part of the community, especially to a new hunter like myself. And uh, I sure my wife thanks you too for letting me practice inside the house, my bugles in my office. So <laughs> thank you, babe, for putting on me while I'm yelling out like a crazy guy. So um, first of all, so I'm a new hunter. Like I said, I haven't drawn out an elk or deer tag yet. We're still been putting in, but my daughter and I go out quite often. 
and uh, we just scout, and you know, she's trying to get into bugling. So I guess, what's the best or the easiest way to cut? She tr- puts a diaphragm in, but it's just way too big. We've tried the calls. And do you recommend a way to start? She loves it, and she tries, and she can cow call and stuff like that. But she's, I just want her to get a lot better and get that experience with me while we're out scouting. How Definitely. would you say we start something like that? Yeah, how old is she? She's eight years old. Eight. So I started my kiddos at about eight or nine with diaphragms. Anything before that, it's, it's pretty difficult. Uh, the, the most important thing is just the fit. If, if you're going to go diaphragm route, uh, there's open read cow calls that anybody can pick up and use pretty quickly. So that might be a route too, just so she's making elk noises and feels like she's making elk noises. Uh, But spending a little time, kids pick things up so quickly. Usually if they can hear it, they can mimic that sound. So just make sure she's, you know, seeing a lot of cow elk sounds and bugles and then give her the diaphragm, let her play with it. And, okay. But make sure it fits. You know, they make them, they're smaller ones they make for uh, youth and for children that'll fit their mouths a little better. Okay, cool. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I, thank you. I, I can assure you that advice is worth more than you pay for it because Corey's daughter, Jessie, won the women's division yesterday I in saw. the World Elk Calling Championship. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> thank, thank you, guys. Grab your knife here. Don't be bashful, folks. Come on. We're, we got a lot more knives to give away here. Yeah, great to meet you guys. Uh, love your videos. Uh, the, your YouTube channel is awesome. Um, two questions I have. How's your friend Bo Beatty doing? And do you have a hunt set up with him this year? Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, Bo's a fantastic guy. Uh, Corey and I got to spend last Friday with Bo. Uh, he's doing great. He's in remission. Uh, you know, for those wondering who Bo Beatty is, he's the llama guy who we rent our llamas from. Uh, fantastic hunter, fantastic person. Uh, and he's had two bouts now with cancer at the tender age of 34. And uh, when we saw him last Friday, he had a big old Bo Beatty smile on his <laughs> face. And uh, you, you, he's you looking think? forward to elk season. Yeah. Uh, Corey's got a special surprise that I think is Bo going to be on your, can you, well, I just let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> Bo is going to be on Corey's Destination Elk Series this coming year. Uh, Bo's wife, Kirsten, we will be filming her in November on a Idaho late uh, elk hunt. Mm. And then Bo drew a Colorado deer tag that we'll be filming. So you're, you're going to see so many llamas in our content this <laughs> right. year that uh, we'll... We'll, we'll have a lot of fun. And, and Bo also, I drew a mountain goat tag in Montana. And when I texted him, I said, you aren't going to believe this. I blew a mountain goat tag. He's like, well, let's bring four llamas and go do it. I'm like, yeah. And then last Friday when Corey and I were with him, he is up to, now we're bringing 10 llamas. <laughs> All right. it, you know, <laughs> Bo Beatty's moving company is what it sounds like. <laughs> we might be bringing recliners and who knows what, but. So if you ever get a chance, anybody get a chance to to rent llamas or go on a llama pack trip with someone who has really good llamas, like bred for packing and, and well-trained, it'll, it'll change your mind on what you might be thinking about llamas. Great. Okay, thank you. Yep. Uh, this year I got a limited entry elk hunt and a good unit during the rut, and I want to know what's the best way to find the big bulls during the rut? You might want to hide behind a chair or something. There's a lot of Utah hunters out here that are saying, what? That's awesome. So, uh, you know, and, and we've talked a little bit about expectations. I wouldn't go into it with, uh, with a desire to shoot a trophy bull. Uh, I, I did that once and it ruined the experience because it was a big letdown. Uh, so go into it knowing that there are big bulls there and that's what you want but enjoy that experience. You know, if you see a little bull close, I'm not saying shoot it, but don't just turn and walk away from it because it's not a big bull. Learn from it, you know, enjoy that and, uh, and just observe what it's doing. As far as finding big bulls, what, what's the time frame? Is it archery or rifle? Uh, it's early rifle. So early rifle. I think so around September 17th. Yeah, so you're going to be right in the middle of the heat of the rut, which is awesome. So it's not going to be hard to find those big bulls. Um, they're they're looking for cows. So if you find the cows, you're going to find those big bull, the herd bulls during that time frame. So I just look for cows. They're going to be bugling like crazy. Uh, listen for bugles. Cover a lot of country. Look at a lot of elk and enjoy that experience. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Will you do my Utah application for me next year? <laughs> How old are you? I'm 13. 13. Darn. Early rifle elk tag in Utah. That is awesome. 13. Yeah. Man. Go yep. get him. Well, come up here and get a knife so when you do shoot him, you have something to gut him with. <laughs> Got a question for you guys. Um, so when, when I go hunt, I set up like 75 yards, have the shooter in front. Um, I don't know if it's more or less effective to have that shooter cow call while I'm out back bugling. So it sounds like there's a cow in the middle between two bulls and if that's going to draw that bull in closer or not. Or So you're talking archery probably? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. so... My, my philosophy is always, if you have a shooter out in front, the shooter needs to be completely quiet. Uh, and the reason for that is that's why he's out in front, is so you as the caller can pull that bull into him. And if a bull hears a cow call, the second he gets into a view of where he should be able to see a cow, where it called from, if he doesn't, he's gonna get nervous. And that's usually where they hang up. So if I'm the shooter out front, I don't wanna say anything, I don't wanna move. I wanna just completely blend in and take advantage of the collar that's back behind bringing that bull into my lap. So I wouldn't, uh, the only time we do any kind of calling if we're the shooter is if we have a herd bull that we just can't break away from his cows. As a shooter, sometimes I'll scream the challenge bugle at him. And then as he turns and does come in and commit, then we'll have the, the collar back behind kind of take over and bring him in from there. So like when you get in this, so you're essentially in his kitchen, right in front. Getting in close, because sometimes it just, it's a matter of, if you're 200 yards away, you can't threaten him enough. But if you get inside 100 yards, he feels that bull's getting too close. He's going to come in and chase you off. And now all of a sudden, if that bull is 50 yards down the hill from where he bugled last time, not necessarily uncommon, and uh, he won't think anything of it. But if you're cow calling from one location and he hears where that's at, he's going to come in looking for a cow. Okay. All right. Thank you. Great question. Hello, sir. Um, big fan. Watch the podcast, or I listen to the podcast all the time. I'm sorry, sir. I'm not very familiar with you. No worries. Uh, Randy is much more, uh, he's a better person to be familiar with. Well, nah, my favorite I'm... episode of your YouTube was the antelope jackrabbit one. That one was awesome. Which, which antelope one? Uh, jackrabbit antelope. It was a oh. big Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. It was a while ago. Yeah, it was in Arizona. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to get up here and tell you guys thank you for everything you do and I'm an adult onset hunter. I'm Hispanic, so I'm a minority in the minority of hunting. So keep at it. Uh, you know what? Um, it's it's been great. Everybody's really welcoming in this. Yeah. You know, event, and I brought my kids. I was gonna say you've got a good little hunting partner right yes, next sir. to you too. Yeah. Uh, this is William. Christian's over there with his mom. But uh, we appreciate you guys, and thank you for everything you do. Awesome. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for being here. And uh, I'm glad you like that jackrabbit antelope. If you ever go to Arizona and you get a chance, they have jackrabbit antelope. It's the largest antelope, or antelope jackrabbit. <laughs> Slow me down when I'm saying that. Corey's over there letting me just walk right off the end of the plank without saying, didn't you mean... Uh, no, I figured there was a punchline coming jackrabbit? Yeah, the, the, so these are the largest jackrabbits uh, on the North American continent. They get up to 12 pounds. They're fantastic eating. Uh, and so my wife, the, the, a little bit about that episode. I'm reviewing episodes at home, uh, and my wife is in the kitchen, and she hears all this excitement in my voice on the episode. And she comes walking in and she's like, what are you so excited about in that episode? And I'm standing there holding a 12 pound antelope jackrabbit that had been part of my effort for three years to finally shoot one of those with a shotgun. And I am doing handstands and flips and cartwheels and she looks at that and she just shakes her head and walks away. <laughs> but... It was a, a ton of fun. Unfortunately, when I was down there last year, uh, rabbits and hares right now in the western United States are suffering greatly from a hemorrhagic fever. Uh, so we've quit, I mean, just as my own personal ethos, uh, I've quit hunting uh, rabbits right now. until, And they'll recover really, really quickly. But if, if you're asking why didn't I hunt them last year, that's why. You eat wolves, you eat jackrabbits, Mm -hmm. You eat muskrats. Yeah. Dilly bars. <laughs> there is one thing normal about you, I guess. <laughs> All of the things. As
as our little group over here would like to know, um, is it best to try and locate the bulls in the evening time, go out early in the morning, try and hit the same area, or bugle as you're going in to try and locate? So it really depends on the area because a lot of times the bulls will move a lot at night. Uh, but if they're in an area where they've got cows in the area, they're coming down, uh, if they aren't with the cows yet, or even if they are with the cows, uh, we do a lot of bugling at night because typically from where they are at dark, they'll be in the same place at daylight tomorrow. And they might move a long ways from there, but if we can find them at dark, we'll be back in that exact place in the morning. And uh, we, we do it both ways. You know, if we're lucky enough to have one that we've located, we'll hunt it first thing, but if not, we're just hiking and looking for a bugle. Nice, yep. beautiful. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Yeah. If people heard the noise, there's a dog fight going on over here. <laughs> They finally got them separated. I, th I thought it was like the MMA of the white lab world or something. I don't think those are white labs, Randy. All right, whatever. <laughs> Thanks for being here, guys, and putting this on. This is cool. But my wife and I are going through the University of Elk Hunting right now, and one thing that I, one question I have, once you're done, you pack him out, he's home, he's in the freezer. What's your guys' favorite way to take care of him after that? Like, as far as how to cut him. him up or how to cook him? How to cook him, how to eat him. If you're eating wolves, I imagine you know how to eat an elk. Yeah, I'll go ahead and field this one because Randy probably doesn't know what good elk tastes like if you're resorting to wolves. But, you know, you can't go wrong with, with elk. And I think the big thing, I've had people say, I can't stand eating an old bull. It's gamey, it's tough. I've never eaten a gamey or tough elk no matter what and it's all in how you take care of it in the field so that's super important from there once you get it in the freezer and you're ready to cook it um, my wife is incredible she has a recipe for every day of the month that's different using elk meat uh, i love just a, a steak wrapped in bacon and cooked on the traeger uh, she makes incredible street tacos out of it and then anything hamburger related we'll take and uh, you can get the bacon ends from the store there's small chunks of bacon and we'll grind it up into some burger and just cook hamburgers that already has a bacon ground into it. Um, but I, I'm a huge Traeger fan and I have not had anything bad off of the Traeger yet. Perfect. Yeah. For me, Corey kind of touched You don't get to answer this one. Well, too bad. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I know something about this topic. <laughs> uh, really, I don't. But... Uh, I do have a Traeger, and the beauty of a Traeger is you slow cook, right? My grandmother, her theory was burn it and then burn it again, which doesn't work. It might work for bacon, but it doesn't work very well for wild game. So I, most of the wild game I ate at grandma's house was akin to eating the shoe off your, or the, the sole off your shoe. And so uh, I get to an adult life and I got to retrain myself and I married a woman who's an unbelievable cook. Uh, and she loves to experiment with a lot of different things. And in spite of the, the whole circle and variety of great meals she makes, it's really hard for me to find anything better than a slow cooked elk steak at a low temperature with just the simplest of seasonings. And I, you know, I, when I say slow cook, I'm talking like low temperature of 250, 260 and cook it for 40 minutes and just let that smoke get in there and let those seasonings ease down in there. And that's why I do that, that, That's what I really see. I'm already starting to water. I got the corner <laughs> of my mouth is drooling here, so. Perfect. One Thank other thing, guys. don't take your back straps or tendon rollings to the butcher. Keep them yourself. Yeah. And about a 16-inch section of back strap on the Traeger cooked for about three hours, two and a half hours, on just low smoke is incredible. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that, that, I, that's a good point. I used to stake out my back straps. Now I cut them into anywhere from 8 to 12-inch like loin roasts. And when you slow cook that, then you can cut them into steaks afterwards, but it makes it so much more flavorful and so moist. It's, it's way better. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, so uh, I apologize if I've already answered this because I was kind of latecomer, but... Uh, Randy and I won't remember if we already answered it anyway, so you're good. All right. <laughs> um, first off, I love everything you guys do. Um, Recently transitioning into a bow from rifle. Um, I've had some success with the rifle. 
can't seem to get close enough to an elk with a bow. I get it within about 100 yards and they run. Uh, I've done the Elk 101 course. Thought I had the answer with the wind and everything else. Any advice? Well, if, if an elk's running, there's a reason. And my guess is it's either his sense of smell, his sense of sight, or his sense of sound. So he's either hearing, seeing, or smelling something that he's recognizing as potential danger. Um, so that's really what I look at. If you can beat an elk's three senses, you can get as close, you can walk up and touch an elk. And there's really no reason you can't walk up and touch an elk other than they can smell, they can see, and they can hear incredibly well. So um, it's hard to say. I mean, it doesn't take very much of a wind switch for three seconds to take your scent 60 yards or 100 yards. Uh, Sound-wise, you know, typically you can break brush. You can, you can do a lot as long as it's a natural sound. Um, if they aren't seeing you move, it's, it's uh, probably thermals and some, in some way they're scenting, you know, smelling you. Uh, the other thing, are you calling to them during that time? Um, I try, but uh, not you with a <laughs> no, so I, no I, I, I wasn't going to say maybe it's your I'm, calling that's scaring them <laughs> off. I was just going to say, you know, a lot of times a bull with cows will just keep some distance there. So if you're calling moving in, it's not uncommon for them to, to continue moving away from you. Okay. All right. Thank you. I, I would add another thing to that. Corey Jacobson is the most wind thermal aware person I've ever hunted with in my life, which is why it's been a couple of years since I've recovered from my last hunt with him. But if we heard a, a bull elk bugling over there 200 yards, my mindset is, well, let's just go get him. Corey, at first I thought the reason he went on a three-quarter mile hike, gained 800 feet of elevation, came around the other way was he just liked to hike and he wanted to see how out of shape I am as an accountant. Uh, later I did, I, I have to admit, there was a method to his madness and he was way more aware of what the wind was doing between us and that elk than I ever was. And I had a lot, what, what you just mentioned there, that's a very common thing for me also. And it's, for me, it's usually when I get lazy or I get in a hurry and I don't do the Corey Jacobson detour, if you want to call it that. <laughs> and uh, so I, 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 that's what my most common reason is. And it wasn't until I started archery hunting with Corey that I came to understand how good an elk's nose is and how careful I was not compared to how careful he is, so. Yeah, we were at uh, Big Sky last week in the Total Archery Challenge and we'd given away uh, a trip for someone to join us there and shoot through peaks and the winner had some great questions. Just we're walking along shooting, you know, they were peppering me with questions and we were looking down into a draw about 400 yards and he said, if there's an elk in the bottom of that draw bugling and the wind's going down there, can he smell you? And I said, absolute, 400 yards. I've, I've seen them from a thousand yards lift their head and look clear up the mountain where we were with the wind coming down to them and take off running. So they can smell incredibly well. And he said, so how would you go and set up on that bull that's 400 yards straight below you? And like Randy said, I looked over and about 800 yards away, there was a mountain that was probably 500 feet in elevation higher than, than what the elk was. And I said, I'd go on the backside of that mountain, circle all the way around and drop down into the draw to get on the level with the elk. And he looked at me and said, that's, that's gotta be a mile and a half. I said, yeah, a mile and a half to get to an elk that's 400 yards away. But if you try it any other way, you've just wasted a quarter mile getting there and a quarter mile back because if the wind's going to them, they're going to smell you. And if they smell you, it's over. So, yeah, there, there are some detours. I think Randy likes my detours because we, uh, our grouse count went way up when we started covering more country. Uh, that is true. You did drag me through some really good grouse country. Corey was amazed that I would shoot a $30 broadhead at a grouse. I was just as amazed that he wouldn't. What I was amazed at is that he would walk away from a bugling elk to go and find that grouse that was making noise in the brush. Well, Not even get a shot at it, he just wanted to go and see if he could find it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, chicken in a pot. <laughs> Who else we got? I, again, thank you for being here, I do appreciate it. Um, I'm, 
uh, one of the Utah elk hunters that hunt public land and, and uh, for an entity bull unit and uh, somehow managed to get a tag this year, even with the continuous server issues every year, the, the, the hours in the query and finally make it in and, and it was successful again this year somehow. Uh, my question is this, giving the, I wouldn't say excessive, a lot of, a lot of hunters, public land, um, generally speaking, you either have one down first thing in the morning or you don't. Uh, what advice or recommendations would you give after that? If you don't have one down first thing in the morning, they're scattered, they're everywhere. What, uh, what advice would you have after that point? Are you archery or rifle? Rifle, rifle, rifle. I'm sorry, yeah. Okay, I, I'll grab this one because I talk a lot about have your first day opening morning plan yeah, and your rest of the season plan. Okay. Because if you can go on pattern one and scout him the night before, the odds are you can kill him the next morning if someone doesn't booger him out of there in the dark. Yep. But that happens okay. a lot. Absolutely. So it's kind of like the whole deck of cards gets reshuffled once the first shooting starts. So my e-scouting plans have all these spots of where are those elk going to go when the shooting starts. And I want to be between where they're at when the shooting starts and where they go after the shooting starts. And so... I always talk about those are sanctuaries. And so anytime I go out somewhere, if you grab my phone or my computer, you would see more waypoints that I consider sanctuaries than you could ever imagine. So it's, it's kind of like, all right, day one's behind me, completely different mindset. It's like you're hunting a different elk at that point because now you're hunting an elk that remembers Oh, yeah, last year Pete wasn't paying attention, and he got shot. He got a victory lap in a Ford F-150. <laughs> well, that bo those bulls who didn't get the victory lap, they instantly are like, oh, yeah, Phew. and they're going to these sanctuaries. So you're hunting almost two diff elk with two different mindsets in the course of 48 hours at most. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Can I, can I add to your question please, and, please and get more of an answer from Randy? So... Day three, you're hunting an area in the morning. There's a lot of pressure there. What do you do after that morning hunt? You know, the first hour when the elk are actually moving and people are firing shots, what do you do for the rest of the day? On day three? Day three, day seven. Day three, day seven. I go find another spot. I keep checking these little sanctuary spots. And, uh, you know, people watch our content and they think, oh, man, look how quickly he finds elk. Well, no, what we, didn't, we don't want to bore you with eight hours of footage for the times we didn't find any elk. So we are covering a lot of ground, checking a lot of places, and you just keep going and going and going. And we talk about hunting pressure just in a general sense of the number of people in the woods. I look at hunting pressure both the time of week, the time of season, and the time of day. So later in the season, most everybody's got it out of their system. The elk are less pressured and their, their behavior each day is slightly different on the last day of season than it was the fourth day of season. Throughout the course of the week, if you're like me and you're underemployed, you know, you, you can hunt midweek. So I know that the behavior of an elk Monday morning after a weekend of pressure is way different than the behavior of that elk Friday afternoon. And so I use those kind of things. And so uh, to, to Corey's question about what do I do, I, first of all, I say, all right, how long is the season? What's the pressure been? Where, by, by day three, they're in the places where the pressure's the absolute least. I mean, there still might be a lot of pressure, but it's less pressure than the places with immense pressure. So I'm looking for those spots, and they're usually a function of distance or topography in a rifle season. Very good. Perfect. Thank you. Cool. Corey's going to give me a C- minus on that one. Oh, we got to wrap it up? All right. We just got the word that uh, we got to wrap it up because we got some real entertainers coming up here after us. So. We got them warmed up, right? Yeah, we got, we got the crowd warmed up. Yeah, we got the chairs warmed up. It's nothing else. <laughs> uh, we're leaving. We're going to leave the rest of this Gerber stuff up here on the stage. If some of you who didn't get some want to come and grab these last few items, please do so. And uh, thank you all for being here. Yeah, Thanks thank to the you. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for sponsoring this.